Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jonathan Coriel and I'll be your moderator for today's program called PTSD in Syrian Refugees and Secondary Traumatization in Aid Workers. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And it's my pleasure now to introduce our distinguished speaker, Dr. Naveen Rizkala. Dr. Rizkala is a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley's Max Center for Mental Health and Social Conflict. She has an impressive record of scholarship, research, and volunteerism. A Palestinian-Israeli, Dr. Rizkala earned her doctorate at Tel Aviv University and has worked professionally as a volunteer with survivors of trauma, war, and sexual violence. Please welcome Dr. Naveen Rizkala. Thank you. Thank you for coming, everyone. So the Syrian war created a mass exodus. It began in March 2011, and by February 2016, 6.6 million Syrians were internally displaced, means inside Syria. Four million Syrians, approximately, fled to Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, and Egypt. Another one million Syrians escaped Europe, mainly Greece and Germany. My study focused on uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan. Um, Since 2011, Jordan has observed more than 1.4 million refugees. Um, Maybe today it's more than 2 million. More than 85% of Syrian refugees reside in Jordanian host communities and not in camps. The Syrians account for 20% of Jordan's population. Yes, Jordan has also um, hosted Iraqi refugees um, before, and they have uh, years of um, hosting Palestinians since uh, 1948. Humanitarian organizations are overwhelmed with the dire needs of certain refugees. PTSD. PTSD symptoms associated with traumatic events manifested in re-experiencing the trauma the persistent emotional distress of traumatized refugees, and avoidance of thoughts, feelings, images, and, and, and situations that remind the person of the negative effect of the traumatic event, and increased arousal, irritability, difficulty falling asleep, and hypervigilance. Most study, studies address PTSD as a consequence of war zone survivors and the secondary traumatization of their partners. Less is known on the ed workers who assist uh, traumatized populations and refugees, still. So in 2014, I went to Jordan um, and I conducted three studies, three different studies. One study was um, qualitative. I interviewed uh, Syrian women, men, and victims of torture. These were um, deep uh, interviews um, asking about their condition, circumstances, war traumatic experiences, mental health, physical health, and what do they need today in Jordan. Another study was um, uh, distributing surveys that assesses um, their mental health and physical health. And another study on the ed workers' mental health. 
um, because I see um, situations of war, um, including many factors, and I don't like to focus only on the survivors or only on the ed workers or only on the organizations. I think um, a lot of factors contributing to um, understanding the situation. So the study examined how personal, interpersonal, displacement and more related factors have impacted refugees' mental health and the mental health of ed workers who assist them in Jordan. It took me from March to August 2014 to collect the data. Interviews, I, um, I interviewed um, 37 um, uh, refugees. I also gave surveys to um, Syrian refugees, 250, and to 317 ed workers who assist them. Adult um, Syrian refugees seeking ser services from humanitarian organizations in Jordan, this is how I found them. I um, called and asked for help from organizations, and they were very, very generous in helping me and opening the doors uh, for me to interview the refugees and to give the surveys um, under their roof uh, to refugees and to their ed workers. The ed workers were, uh, operated in humanitarian organizations in Jordan and assisted uh, Syrian refugees. All, all of uh, the participants were 19 years of age. So this is what I mean by adult uh, Syrian, ref um, um, Syrian refugees and the ed workers. Um, the refugees were interviewed privately in the NGOs. Some of them couldn't come to the NGO and, and to the NGOs and preferred that I come to their homes, so I went and I sat with them. Um, and others preferred public spaces like coffee shops, restaurants. Um, so I went to wherever they wanted to see me at. Um, I think as researchers, we need to be flexible um, to accommodate um, our convenience uh, to the participants' convenience. So I was not uh, a factor. They were more important um, to see. Um, and the surveys were given to ed workers during their working hours. The participating organizations were uh, 15, that I can mention their names. Another five um, wanted to remain um, um, anonymous, so I cannot say who were they. Um, most of them, half of them were in Amman, the capital of Jordan, Zara, Mafra, Ramtha, Irwed, and Hattin. These are different locations in Jordan. And of course, the surveys and the interviews were conducted in Arabic. Um, my um, dialect is a Palestinian one, and their dialect uh, is Syrian. There's a s slightly difference. So whenever I talk to them and I didn't understand what they mean in the words, so I asked for um, um, more information to understand them better and to learn. Um, the measurements that I used uh, were the war event questionnaire. This was used uh, in Lebanon. Um, the Harvard trauma questionnaire was also used uh, with Iraqi refugees. Um, these were 
two questionnaires that I used mainly with the Syrian refugees. Additional to these two, um, which I also uh, used with the surveys of ed workers, I added two uh, scales of secondary uh, trauma questionnaire and trauma and attachment believe uh, scale. These two last uh, scales were only given for ed workers. A short note about um, terminology, because a lot of uh, scholars, um, um, people in humanitarian uh, work, they keep using the terms um, as if it's the same one. Um, so secondary traumatic, they call it secondary traumatization in general uh, as an umbrella, but it, it is secondary traumatic stress and vicarious traumatization. These are two different uh, terms that address two different things. Um, secondary traumatic stress affect uh, providers or ed workers who, pro who work with trauma survivors, um, and it affects their feelings and their behaviors. So, for instance... Um, when I used to work in the rape crisis center, um, um, I, I heard I was sitting on the hotline um, and providing assistance to survivors of sexual violence. Um, some of the women who, who were volunteering there for years, she told me, did you know that a woman was raped here on the stairs of the organization? And I was really shocked of this information. And I was the one locking the doors of the organization. So I, I, I would be the person who would stay there late with the rest of the volunteers. And when everybody will go, I would shut the systems and everything, the doors and everything, and go. So before knowing this information, I just used to go home with no problems and just go down the stairs to streets, and then I reach my apartment, and that's it. But after knowing this information, I got scared, um, because then it means that something might happen to me. Um, so then I started calling my dad and saying, Dad, can you just talk to me? Like, how was your day? You know, I didn't tell him that I was scared to go by myself, but he understood without me telling him. And he would accompany me through the going down the stairs or even until I reached my car and then go two blocks in my car to reach my apartment. So this is secondary traumatic stress because my feelings and my behavior were changed after hearing the stories in the center and the fact that something might happen to me. Yeah? Vicarious traumatization is different. It's, um, it has, um, <laughs> it changes our thoughts and our beliefs, um, and concepts about the world and how, um, we trust others, how we interact with other, with others and how safe we feel in our, um, environment and with our interactions with others. From my experience with uh, trauma and with ed workers, um, the vicarious traumatization takes more time uh, to hit compared to secondary traumatization, secondary traumatic stress. Um, it takes more... 
to hear more cases and more traumatic stories, uh, to have our concepts and beliefs about the world uh, to be changed. But I might be wrong. It's only my personal experience. Um, so the trauma diagnostic screens that um, uh, we used, the Harvard Trauma Questionnaires, we used the 16 questions. And positive uh, screen on the instrument represent the report of enough symptomology of considered to, con- to be considered likely to have the condition. It means if people screen positive on um, the, the HDQ, it means that they suffer enough PTSD symptomology, the one that I mentioned before, we experiencing avoidance and uh, arousal. The higher scores on the SCQ, which is the secondary traumatic stress, means that they have more secondary traumatic stress. Remember the behavior and uh, the feelings. So these symptoms are also similar to PTSD. And higher scores on the tabs um, uh, reflect greater uh, vicarious traumatization, which means greater disturbance in cognitive schemes that undermine the self and others. Safety, intimacy, trust, control, and esteem. It also affects our self-esteem and how we esteem others. PTSD case was defined by a positive screen, STS by the STQ, and uh, vicarious traumatization by the TAPS. Of course, the study, all the studies uh, were approved by um, um, the Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects at UC Berkeley. And oral um, consent was the only thing that we, that I required from participants to give them a, a safe space to participate. I didn't want them to sign their names. I didn't ask for their names or any other identifying information. Also from ed workers, because then I didn't want them to feel any risk um, of losing their jobs or um, anything related to their bosses. So no names. Results related to refugees. So the demographics, um, they're, um, the main, the, the average of, of uh, their age was 37 years. Uh, 56.3% are women and um, 43.7% are men. They were married uh, for uh, 15.5 years on average. And they married at the age of 22 on average with 4.29 children average. 71% came to Jordan with their spouses. And the average of the years of education was 10.26. Refugees lived in one household with 6.26 other members of the family. Uh, They lived in Jordan for about 14.19 months when I interviewed them. And 85% described their economic status as low or very low. Results on the ed workers, uh, they were 29.32 years of age, 57% women and 43 men, 88% were Jordanians, 8% Syrians, and 4% foreigners, and 9% lived in refugee camps. Of course, the Jordanians include the Palestinians, who uh, identify as Jordanians after living there for so long. Um, 
I didn't have uh, a question differentiating between uh, um, origin as Palestinian or Jordanian. Um, 52.4% were single, 45.3% were married, and 23 divorced. And the, their work experience ranged from zero, like new, to 45 years, um, um, with average of 3 years, 0.09. And the education, as you can see, is um, compared... Yeah, it's, it's pretty... Uh, Uh, high, it's 15.82 years. Uh, 84.7 work full-time, 7.8 uh, work part-time, and 7.5 volunteered. And 90, um, 29% described their salary as low or very low, and 52% described their income as insufficient for living uh, in Jordan. The, the war exposure of refugees, so 94.2 experienced war events. Women, um, um, 92%, and men, 97%. Slightly men experienced more traumatic uh, events than women. It includes shelling, violent acts, gunfire, damage of prop property, of course, forced separation from family members, 77.8%. This is uh, a big number, and it's very painful, especially in Middle Eastern populations, where the family and the collective is very important as uh, a main social um, um, support system. Uh, serious physical injury from combat situation, uh, 18.4%. Torture, 15.8%. Uh, disappearance or kidnapping of a spouse, 15.5%. Disappearance or kidnapping of a child, 11%. And rape due to the war, 6.4%. Of course, including men and women. This data was uh, hard to... Um, Um, to reveal uh, in the interviews because when I first went to Jordan I wanted to interview um, refugees on sexual violence but they didn't want to talk to me about sexual violence they only wanted to talk about the war traumatic experiences but with time uh, when I um, went every day to the organizations and um, I sat there I listened to refugees um they started trusting me, and um, slowly um, people would come and they would initiate participating in the study. I wasn't seeking uh, participants anymore. Um, and, um, and slowly they would also say, um, we have a neighbor who has gone through something horrible, and she would love to talk. To you, would you like to see her? And I would say, of course, yes. And um, and I would interview women who have uh, gone through sexual violence in uh, in the most horrible um, 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 situations. Um, and I have a background in hearing uh, sexual violence stories, and these stories were um, harder or different in their complexity from what I've ever uh, heard before. Um, also victims of torture, um, the descriptions 
horrifying. I would interview one or two um, um, people and then I would not be able to get out of my bed for two days. Yeah, yeah, horrible stories. Um, I can still close my eyes. Um, I, I did these interviews in 2014 and I remember exactly how the interview went and the descriptions in the interview. Yeah. Um, of course, um, the data here, 6.4%, doesn't represent what happened in the reality because many uh, of the women said, we do not want to be recorded. Please do not include us in the data. So I didn't. I just sat there and um, heard their stories and tried to be uh, empathetic and um, convince them to, to get some help uh, from organizations with referrals. So um, even though I was in, in wearing a hat of the researcher, I also uh, am a social worker and a therapist. Um, so uh, the humanitarian uh, interaction and, and assistance to, to these people in a way was more important than the data. Refugees um, showed, the, the data from the refugees showed that 43% screened positive on PTSD. So 43% suffered from PTSD symptoms. Women suffered more than men, 47.2% compared to men, 37.3%. Ed workers, mental health. They screen positive on PTSD too, only 13%. On the secondary traumatic stress, 46% screen positive, 17% uh, associated with mild to severe symptomology, and 29% associated with extreme symptomology. This is very concerning uh, results. Vicarious traumatization, 29% screen below average, 45% on average, and 26% above average, which is high, out of which 4% screen extremely high with an immediate clinical concern. Take a minute to... For the refugee, after taking all the characteristic in the model into account, enhanced well-being was associated with income, health, and absence of affective disorder. For ed workers, increased training. This is really shocking. This was shocking to me. Um, in increased training was associated with increased vicarious traumatization, and increased supervision was associated with increased uh, secondary traumatic stress. So organizations that wanted to help their ed workers and provide them with, with training and supervision actually caused harm in providing uh, um, these um, training and supervision. Raising some questions on why, yeah? In Jordan, among Syrian refugees, PTSD, no matter how you measure it, um, is 50% to three times uh, than found in a society experiencing recent conflict. Syrian refugees in Jordan appear to evidence a higher prevalence of PTSD than in other countries. For instance, in Lebanon, 35.4, and in Turkey, 33.5. Uh, um, and this is very high for non-conflict countries, such as in Sweden, 5.6%, and in Australia, 1.3%. 
our conclusions were that it is essential to better address the overwhelming impact of PTSD on Syrian refugees, and distress and PTSD should not be ad addressed in individual interventions only, but also with spouses and family members. We had um, additional analysis testing for how the war traumatic experiences and displacement challenges impacted their intimate lives. And we have found that um, also war uh, traumatic experiences and displacement challenges have damaged their intimacy, um, including sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, uh, social intimacy, intellectual intimacy, um, And I added that because I I like to see um, people as a complex of, of, of personal, interpersonal, and uh, social human beings. And the war, um, in my personal perspective, impacts different dimensions. And we should be aware of not only looking at PTSD and only the negative symptoms, But I was looking for some hope. Uh, maybe the, the, intimate, uh, the intimacy between their spouses will um, save them some, some pain or some agony. Or, or, or um, yeah, I really wanted something positive. Um, so another um, um, variables that, that I entered in the survey uh, were post-traumatic growth, which is the positive experience of people who um, after experiencing trauma, uh, many people say that after experiencing traumatic events and all the negative impacts, they actually learn something positive and change in a positive way um, uh, that contributed um, to their uh, new life after the trauma. Um, so we also um, examined that and we found that, um, that income and assistance from NGOs actually contributed to their post-traumatic growth of the refugees. So we, yes, we encourage uh, providing assistance to refugees and not like letting them uh, without any help. Interventions with refugees populations in the Middle East and elsewhere should be tailored according to their social and cultural co context, in addition to being trauma-focused. This, these are the conclusions on ed workers. So training and supervision um, are recommended to be substantially trauma-specific and conducted by experienced professionals sourced outside of the NGOs to enhance safe environment. 64% of the, um, of the ed workers who uh, participated in the study um, reported that they have got their supervision from someone Uh, inside the organization. So maybe this is their manager, director, someone who supervises their work. So the boundaries between how, uh, if I'm gonna feel free to talk to my supervisor about the negative things that I encounter at work, it, 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 it's not going to be a clean environment and they are going to uh, keep many things to themselves. And actually, this will contribute to, to staying with the trauma and with the uh, consequences of it. Training and supervision need to be socially and culturally sensitive. We know that UNHCR 
and other uh, UN agencies uh, provide the training <laughs> to ed workers um, around the world. Sometimes it is not socially and culturally um, adequate to the population they are delivering the training. Um, so I'm questioning how effective it is. Um, sometimes it's even damaging, like I have just approved in the, in the data, from the data. We also encourage international agencies and donors to allocate resources to an improved working environment for ed workers, which includes um, social benefits, development of, of local capacities, training, and psychological support to enhance ed workers' well-being, as well as the well-being to, of refugees and locals um, who they attentively um, serve. The limitations, of course, the it, a correlation is not causation. And the samples uh, are of convenience obtained from refugees seeking assistance from NGOs and of ed workers who agree to participate in the study. Uh, 30% um, gave me the, the envelope. I gave them the survey in an envelope to keep it confidential. So they gave me the envelope, uh, envelope sealed, uh, but with no responses in there, uh, demonstrating that it they didn't want to participate, but this didn't expose them in front of their supervisors or um, impose any st like um, stress to participate. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. We, we have a, a lot of questions, and I think uh, one, of the, one of the questions uh, um, that was bound to come up is, is how people can actually help. You, you, at the very end, you mentioned um, um, these NGOs and how it's important to, essentially you were saying this, how important, how important it is to give to them. But, um, you know, does $10 help, you know, giving it to the UN refugee, you know, Agency for Refugees, does that help? Does it help to give it to a particular NGO that you're familiar with? What would you advise people who are listening to this, this program um, who say, how can I help after hearing you describe the, the, the problem? Um, yes, $10 help, even $10. Because $10 from you, $10 from him, from her, it accumulates to a, um, a good amount that can actually assist. Um, and donors find it more sexy, sorry for the uh, term, to, to donate to refugees, and they forget about the ed workers. Um, a lot of NGOs that I um, provide um, support to, um, they say that it's very hard to get donations to to do self care for the staff or for volunteers in their organizations, um, so they just leave them without, um, and it's really really concerning. Um, so yeah, if if you would like to contribute and and donate, please think think about both populations, also the refugees and the ed workers, um, and give the organization the freedom to allocate the the, the budget according to what they think is important. And please donate to, to organizations that you feel um, 
um, that they can address properly um, um, the assistance that was provided to them. Uh, Google them, do the research, ask around, read the comments and reviews. People tell. There's no mistakes about it. So, so even even in the NGO world, there are, there are, there are, there are comments people leave that indicate sort of like a Yelp review or something else. This this organization is worthy of your time, and this organization might be you might want to think about it. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. And also, um, I like to 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 donate to smaller organizations like local charities because they work with the people, and my money will not be wasted on. Uh, bureaucracy and uh, HR and all that uh, with the bigger organizations. But this is my personal choice. I would, I would not um, dictate your personal choices. Speaking of personal choices, I mean, this is a good question somebody asked about um, how you came to be involved in the refugee crisis. And I know if people Google your name, they will find all sorts of stuff about... Um, connecting couples and understanding a lot, a lot of your work seems to be about understanding intimacy and, and, you know, sexual intimacy might, might be one thing, but it's really about deepening the connections and parsing out the different ways that we all communicate, um, in, in a, in a relationship that's a couple. Um, but so how did how did you go from, and you, you know, you have a lot of interest, but how did you go from that in particular to Syrian refugees in Jordan? Hmm. <laughs> um, so my PhD was related to intimacy because uh, I had issues in my personal life. I just made a PhD out of it. Um, <laughs> and then, but my practical, my work, my salary came from working with trauma or traumatized populations. I work with, uh, with um, um, the survivors of sexual violence. And then I was um, a director of a mobile clinic treating uh, women in prostitution, men in prostitution, and LGBTQ in prostitution. Um, so trauma was part of my life. Um, and social workers, they deal with a lot of trauma. Nobody comes to, social, to a social worker telling them how beautiful life is. They seek help. And we hear a lot of uh, horrible stories. But I seem to... To be able to handle the extremely horrible stories in a, in a reasonable way. Let's say that when I started working with uh, traumatized populations, it wasn't, um, it wasn't um, easy. I used to have nightmares and a sleeping disorder, um, sleeping at 6 a.m. because I just finished work at 4 a.m., cleaning excessively. My apartments used to be very clean and organized, uh, which can be very good. But um, And then I told the organization where I worked at that I really need help because it was the, the workload was too high. Um, I was responsible for, at the beginning, they hired me to be responsible for 24 volunteers. But I added and added more volunteers and trained them, and they became 95. And getting three phone calls a day from different volunteers, it's, it's, it's hectic, and survivors, and doing other stuff. So they gave me a gift of a good supervision um, with a psychologist. Um, and she helped me navigate my way and, um, and grow 
from from this work and to learn how to handle it in a in a in a good way and continue doing it in a positive um manner um so yes so um from this background uh, with traumatization um i i reached to the max center on mental health and social conflict at uc berkeley and um and the professor Seagal, uh, with whom I worked, um, he said, "Give me any topic that you're interested at." And 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 um, and I was I, I was missing home so much. Uh, I was culture shocked the first time in the U.S. So um, I, I I I started relating relating to to the Middle East more. So I filled filled the gap in my knowledge in the revolutions and the history and everything. And then I saw the Syrian refugee uh, crisis and um, the forced marriages or the human trafficking. Um, and I said, okay, I have a lot of experience in sexual violence. I want to do that with the Syrian refugees. And the professor said, fine, let's do it. And... From sexual violence became war traumatic experiences and sexual violence and torture and so many other things. Um, and because I saw the volunteers in the rape crisis center and in the mobile clinic when we treated women in prostitution, um, I, also, I always saw how the staff was so traumatized, so overwhelmed, flooding with feelings and anger and and, and, and frustration and so many emotions that I couldn't not include that uh, in my study on the Syrian refugees. I had to see what, what is happening in, in, in different countries and if maybe they are handling it better. <laughs> maybe we can learn something about it. So this is why I included it, including them. And we, we should say that um, one, one question for the audience was your reference earlier to the clinic you worked in and how, how you were sort of scared for a while. You talked to your father that that was actually in Haifa, I believe. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and that you were born in Ramallah. Yes. Um, so um, you spent a, you know, a lot of formidable years in, in Haifa, and, were, and that's, that's where you... Five years uh, yeah. before coming here, I was um, two and a half years in the rape crisis center and two and a half years in the mobile clinic uh, treating women in prostitution. Yeah. Um, your, your presentation gets into, uh, it was, it's really uh, well done and it, 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 there were a lot of statistics there. But as you said, there, there were people, you, you gave people the benefit of the whatever and they, they, you didn't ask for their name. You didn't, they didn't have to give you their name. No. And so you, you mentioned earlier that um, you know, a lot of people donate because, to Syrian refugees, but for, especially in the United States, there's, there's an emphasis on, oh, donate to, and then they pull out a name so that you actually really humanize the crisis. And your study, it's really thorough, but it's a, there are a lot of statistics um, you have a lot of anecdotes that I maybe you're reluctant, maybe you're not so reluctant. I know before in the past you've talked about how you're in the you're in working with Syrian refugees and fairly rich, wealthy people, men would come up. Um, I'm not quite sure how this worked, but they would get a hold of young, you know, Syrian women and bring them back within a couple of weeks. The implication was that the, you know there was a kind of quid pro quo, as it were, you know. I'll give you money if you give me your, you know, your body or whatever. Can you talk about that? Because that's a very particular, 
aspect of the crisis that I have not heard before or seen before until reading what you had talked about it. I saw that in the media. Okay. I saw it in on Facebook. I saw it on YouTube. I saw like short movies, and um, and in, in upset. It, it, it was irritating to me to see because sometimes the media actually twist the reality and we, and we don't know if it's true or not true. And I wanted to know if it's true or not. Um, none of the refugees that I interviewed said that they gave their daughters to anyone for money. Uh, they actually were scared for their daughters. They wanted a good match for their daughters um, and sons. Um, a lot of them described uh, child labor um, because the parents could not get any work permit to, to work in Jordan. Um, um, and they were horrible stories about rape, group rape, uh, torture. Um, but I didn't encounter any of the... Um, Stories that were like extremely published on on the media, saying that all Syrians are giving their daughters to to these rich men. La 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 la. I didn't I didn't hear it. So, as as I came to today's uh, event, I was um, looking at the uh, latest news on Syrian refugees, and of course, you went to Jordan. If there there are many who live in Lebanon, and um, they were told uh, this week or so that they that. Because of um, government regulations, they had to um, destroy their own houses that they had built for their families. Um, and, and the story talked about the precarious nature of being a refugee. And, and one of the um, threads, threads of the story was that politics is involved uh, in Lebanon. Now, I don't know if this is true in, in Jordan or other countries that you visited. Maybe you don't even want to talk about that. But, but often the... Um, the refugee crisis is not just a crisis of refugees. You know, it's a practical matter, but there are also political matters. And I'm wondering if you had to face that in Jordan or in your work with Syrian refugees. Of course, it's a political matter in all countries, in, in, in the whole, in the world today. It's, it's going, yeah, it's going extremely to the right. Look where we are at. Um, look at the borders in Mexico, what happens to the children in the detention centers. Like, it's horrible how the, the public opinion is becoming so to the right and against refugees. Even in Germany, it's like that opened their arms and doors to refugees. They're having some questions. They're... Um, uh, Greece is suffering. Of course, when you're hosting refugees, it has consequences, let's say. It might be that it's overloading on the infrastructure of any country that hosts refugees, on the educational system, health system, um, um, water, uh, anything. Rents, like the housing issues, anything. But it also can contribute to the country. Like why Germany actually opened the doors? They want younger, labor-capable um, um, people to come and contribute to the country, which is studies prove that it is very true. Refugees, and look at this country, the migrants. They come, they have the brains, they have the skills, they have the hands. And the Syrians... 
they have wonderful skills. They just need the opportunity to use it. And, um, and, and, and the, the host countries are so afraid to, to give work permits because it might jeopardize, um, put uh, risk on the, the, the locals. But if you provide work to all and you open it to all, then you might enhance the economy of your country. Like, use the brain. Why, why minimize if you can maximize the opportunities? I say, yeah, open. Open this, open this, open this. The people in the, in, the, in the audio will not understand. The head, the heart, and the hands. Um, this is my political statement now. It becomes political. I, I wonder if you're tempted to um, write not just academic, um, or, um, to do your academic work, but to actually do popular you know, work that, or maybe a book or something like that that would... Uh, be an extension of the work you do that would, you know, have an impact that way beyond uh, the great impact that you're doing now. Oh, they didn't think about that in this way. <laughs> uh, they keep telling me write something academic, um, and I do. Um, but my pro, pro bono work is uh, in supporting organizations and ed workers who who write me and they say we need help, uh, students. Um, in in big universities, not only at UC Berkeley, who go and do study and research, and then in like um, in Rohingya refugees, uh, uh, with Rohingya refugees, with uh, other refugees, not the Syrians, um, and then they come back from data collection, and then they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do with themselves. Um, so my pro, pro bono work today is in providing um, um, ed providing support, emotional support to ed workers in Yemen who document human rights violations. And, um, and they are um, um, under extreme threat of losing their lives or getting detained, getting tortured, and they are hunted. And I do that with WhatsApp and other media, but... Um, and sometimes I don't hear from them when we schedule, and I get scared. Maybe they're gone. And, and it is scary, uh, but it's important. I don't see myself not do that. Uh, even though I, I read the articles and the statistics and, and do the studies and, and all that, but the studies and the, the research and the academia, it only reinforces my fieldwork and what I believe in what we should do in practical, in our hands. I call it hands, but it's not only hands. Well, in fact, one of the things that you, I believe this is a volunteer, but um, two years ago in the, in the really bad fires here in the Bay Area, you did a lot of work with um, uh, aid workers. Is that, isn't, isn't that correct? You spent a good amount of time there. Um, not only. Um, um, when the fires uh, erupted, I went there and provided um, emotional assistance to the community that was uh, anxious about losing their homes and... Um, maybe losing their homes, maybe not. This unknown situation is anxiety-provoking and, and very stressful. Um, and, um, and tangible assistance like shampoo, clothes, like things that they need because they left everything. Um, but afterwards, um, 
I, I did um, support groups or uh, working groups uh, with um, with clergy uh, clergy leaders in Santa Rosa. Um, Christians and Jewish and, and Buddhahi and Muslims all together sitting and, um, and talking about how they dealt with the crisis and how they are impacted by members of the community who were impacted from the fires and lost their homes. It's really tough. It's tough work that they want to help and they're opening their doors and their hands but then they don't know what, how to do it and how, how to deal with that secondary trauma that, uh, that haunts them. And I also advised them to, to open another group, and we did, with their staff, because the staff is not the leader of the congregations. Um, it's, it's, the staff are the ones who, who deal with the phone calls, who deal with the people crying, uh, asking them for uh, the assistance. So they also needed uh, some guidance and emotional support on how to do it. So I did that, and I'm glad to do that. Uh, I, I'd say uh, we, we are glad you did that too. Um, one question from the audience is, is, how often do aid workers have to quit because of PTSD, and how hard is it to find replacements? Again? Um, how often do aid workers have to quit because of PTSD? To quit? Yeah, quit. The job? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Who asked this? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, a lot of people, um, they hop between organizations. Mm -hmm. Maybe they find a better social benefits, better salary, so they, they hop from one organization to another in the search for a better one, maybe in salary, maybe in, I don't know. But eventually, when the secondary traumatic stress happen or hit them, it will continue hitting them because they're doing this similar work. And if the organization is not taking responsibility in providing the staff with the support needed, then it's the same cycle, negative cycle. So a lot of people will quit this kind of humanitarian work. Um, many of them, uh, after a year, two years, uh, they will quit. My recommendation is to stay in one, one um, specific organization for three years and then go to another one. And if you can diverse uh, the responsibility that you have and the things that you do in, in every organization, then it's better for your uh, mental health. Also, if you have uh, trauma-focused supervision training, um, it can also help you in dealing with this. Um, so, yeah, so if organizations want to save some money <laughs> in training and retraining new ed workers, they might want to think about investing the money in actually supporting the staff that can linger their stay in the organization instead of leaving after a year or a few months. Especially studies uh, show that younger age and um, lesser years of experience are the, one, are the ed workers who are hit harder from secondary traumatization. Um, so I would advise organizations to do a good check 
in interviewing the ed workers on their experience, on the training that they have, on the coping mechanisms, on the self-care, if they are aware. And when I say self-care, um, it's only the awareness of, 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 of how I uh, deal with my things. But it, but organizations, a lot of organizations, they, they say, do self-care. Do your self-care. As if the ed workers are the one uh, the, responsible for this, the, the caring for themselves. No, 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 no. Self-care needs to come from the organization. It's their responsibility. When you hire this person, it's your responsibility in the interview to check uh, their background, their capacities. And if you agree to hire them, then you have to take full responsibility for their mental health during such humanitarian work. Otherwise, these humanitarian NGOs are not doing humanitarian um, service with their staff. They're just damaging them. Yeah, I think I think it's a, re- it's a really good point, and it's, uh, I'm glad you've mentioned that throughout throughout your your talk. We we have time for about one more question, and I have several, but I'll have to quickly just choose choose one. And I, th- I think this is a good one. I mean, how the question is, how can creative arts aid in the treatment of PTSD? Is there significant presence of the creative arts in the field. So creative arts meaning um, maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, theater therapy or, or something that's that's um, brings people out into something that's maybe creative and, you know, dare, dare I say this, fun. Because I don't know how much fun you're having, but um, maybe, maybe it is it's fun in its own way. Yes. Um, I say all techniques and methods are legitimate and helpful. If they are done by professionals who are who, who know what they're doing in the process, uh, paintings and drawing and act and drama and theater and uh, going out in the woods and so many and sports and and, and yoga and and meditation, music. Yes, thank you. Uh, story writing. Uh, all these methods are essential because there's so many people who do not know how to verbalize their issues and find these a great um, way to express what they are feeling. Sometimes even the verbal ones like me, we don't know what exactly we're feeling. And during the process of the arts and, 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 and the doing, and not only the being, you discover what is actually bothering you. And interaction with with group uh, might be very helpful, though I have a warning. <laughs> um, when uh, uh, trainings or supervision is done in groups uh, by a professional, sometimes they are not um, trauma focused, and they are not. Um, they only give a space to share the experiences. And the people, they love to, to share their traumatic experiences. But then others in the group, they gain more traumatic experiences, more stories to remember, more load to go home with. And instead of taking the load out of them and, 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 and taking care of them, you're actually re-exposing them to the trauma, which is very dangerous. And professionals, they, they, they are not aware of, of this risk. And in two of my studies, 
we have discovered that supervision and group supervision, they are enhancing the secondary traumatization. And one of the explanations that I um, offered is that this might be because of the re-exposure to trauma as they allow um, to vent only and they don't give them um, techniques to deal with what they have heard and, and, and doing in the work. Just a point to think of. <laughs> I appreciate you making that, and I hope uh, a lot of people will listen to this uh, discussion online. We want to thank you, uh, Dr. Naveen Rizkala. You're a postdoctoral fellow at the UC Berkeley's Max Center for Mental Health and Social Conflict. We also want to thank our audience here and for those listening to the recording on the Internet. I'm Jonathan Curiel, today's moderator, and now this meeting in the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you.